BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Today's podcast is presented by Pago. Pago is the easiest way to, for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Pago. Apply today to become a member of and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast in the How Did You Hear About Pago section of this application. Welcome to Monster Legend Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner, and this week we're in Ontario. It's Christmas week, everybody. How are you doing? Hope you're having a great holidays and you're enjoying your family and everything. Ontario. So, uh, first off, uh, got a little mad in the podcast chat because, uh, Paranormal podcast uh, network or whatever. It sent me an ad. It sent me an email or a message on Instagram saying, uh, off showing like, hey, here's some decent advertising with us. And they sent me an email with like all different pricing stuff. And like, oh, never mind. We really don't want to do advertising for with you. I'm like, okay. The fuck? The most fucking point is, you, I'm paying. I'll pay, like I'll pay you money, so I can advertise on your thing, right? I was like, well, you're 
your podcast kind of sucks, man. Yo, sorry. It's just me. I don't really fucking. I don't know what I'm doing all the time. I'm just trying to do stuff. Talk about stuff, you know. There you go. I feel like I should do like a. Oh, yeah. If you haven't heard. Last episode. Last new episode. We on 28th. Unless, uh, guys want me to do some more. I haven't really been getting a lot of support here. It costs like, I think I put like a couple grand in this already. I haven't really got anything much in turn. Oh. Ontario. History. Um. I got a lot here actually in Ontario. So let's do a quick history. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Fuck. Maybe skip over history. But uh, Ontario, there's a lot to it, history-wise. A lot of French stuff and whatnot. A lot of there. Seven Years' War and the Treaty of Paris in 1763, uh, through 1791 eight, to 1867. Uh, uh, some lands were added to Canada, yes, Quebec. There's a war of 1812 that happened. That happened, and stuff in the Great Lakes happening. I got like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different articles I found on cryptids. Uh, first one the Lake Ontario Serpent is a Canadian lake monster. There are many sightings for this creature, as well as local as a local legend, ranging from children's stories, settlers' tales, and modern sightings. The one thing that all science have in common is that they tell of a lawn and serpent-like creature. The creature is known by other names such as and has many variant names such as the Gassy Anthea, the Metrothorus, and Kingsty from Kingston in the east side of the lake. The creature of creatures could be inhabiting most of Great Lakes too. This is because there are some tidings of lawn-e-like monsters and all the lakes are connected in some way. Uh, Seneca, some sightings, uh, in pre-Columbus, Seneca legend told of a huge beast called Gessianthia uh, that inhabited depths of the lake. Described it as a large and serpent-like. What was odd is that they described it as also being able to fly and spew fire from its mouth. Whoa. So it's like a dragon? Sounds like a dragon of some kind. They also called it uh, the meteor dragon. This is because of the supposed origin, which is from a mere meteoroid that struck Earth. This could make it alien. Bro, ancient aliens. So, uh, The crew of fur trade. Uh, first fur traders. Crew of a fur trade boat reported seeing a 30-foot long great snake. This made uh, unexpectedly turn back and postponed their trip from Toronto to the Niagara region. 
1817, on July 3rd, 1817, the crew of a ship witnessed a uh, a blackish snake-like monster, one foot in diameter and 30 to 40 feet in length. The monster was witnessed three miles offshore. Damn, did I see it three miles away? The fuck? 1829, August 5th, 1829. Two children believe they had seen a 20 to 30 foot launched snake-like creature. Their account was published in a local newspaper stating, not the first one of the kind that has been seen in Lake Ontario, and there can be no doubt of the existence of such monsters in our inland seas. It was also published in the Kingston Gazette and Religious Advocate, another newspaper. It said that children witnessed a hideous water snake or serpent of prodigious dimensions. In 1833, on July 5th, 1st, 1833, Captain Al Abjal Kalog uh, and some other crew aboard the Polythemus had spied a 175-foot blue serpent on their way to Kingston Harbor. The creature had no obvious head, but rather tapered off at either end, as they it to a giant earthworm. It made a leisurely flyby of the ship before smoothly making its way up the St. Lawrence. The entire account was published in the Oswaga Palamist Times. In 1842, an unnamed date in 1842, two boys, their names both McConnell, reported seeing a brown 30 to 40 foot creature with a large head swimming off the shore of Gold Beach. They were quite surprised to quickly told their father he reacted quickly and summoned a man who owned a rifle before he could shoot the beast. Uh, before he could shoot the beast, it appeared, disappeared back to the depths. In 1872, on July 25th, 1872, city residents of Auckland, New York, witnessed a bellowing monster leap 50 feet out of the water before making its way northward out of sight. In August of 1877, the creature was spotted in Burnting Bay, where it was described as the fisherman as resembling a log with a mouth like a crocodile. Even one fisherman claimed that the Monster had snapped off his oar, leaving visible tooth marks. A journalist from Kingston Daily News noted that we give the story as garner to what it is worth and leave the reader to investigate for himself. In 1882, on August 22nd, a serpent was witnessed in the water near Fort York. These three witnesses described it as being 50 feet long, as wide as a man, and the blush gray with stiff bristles covering its body. Account was published in the Toronto Mail and later republished in the New York Times. The creature spent some time floating and basking in the sun before swimming off into the distance. Now, big jump here. 1968, nearly like 80, 90 years later. On a name date in 1868, resident. Oh, sorry. Uh, 1968, a resident of Scarborough witness. Oh, I think they typo here. Uh, I think it was like 1868. Uh, unnamed date in 1868. A resident of Scarborough witnessed a 20 foot long eel like creature with a mane of some sort in the waters of Toronto. Kingston is the name of all the creatures that were spotted near Kingston and the east side of the lake. In 1881, December, passengers and the crew of the steamship of Gypsy 
got a glimpse of a creature. It was described as being 25 to 40 feet and having small legs and a large tail. In 1888, the summer of 1888, two sailors reported seeing a serpent creature in the channel between Wolf and Smoke Islands. In 1892, in July, a couple... Uh, were attacked by a monster while fishing near Brecker's, Brecky's Bay. Her husband fended off the monster with his fishing pole, saving both their lives. The couple described the creature as a huge serpent with eyes like balls of fire. In 1931, in August, two physicians uh, spotted a 30-foot creature as they rolled from Alexandria Bay to Kingston's Yacht Club. Described it, the two described it as having... Uh, one eye in the middle of this. Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up! Described it as having one eye in the middle of his head as well. Two antler-like horns. In 1934, it was a hoax. New information here. Uh, I'll get that later, but... Um, during the 1970s, a creature was signed... Uh, cited twice by the same person. He was an employee of the Ministry of Natural Resources. For both signs, he said he saw a large creature diving into the lake from the shores of Prince Edward County. Uh, some facts. It is believed that the majority of signs were each of its own creature. I believe, yeah. It's, it probably has its own breeding population as there are different lengths each sighting and they span from both European colonization. The lengths vary from a 20-foot creature to a 175-foot creature. The first sighting is so old, it is undated, and the last is probably somewhere in the 1970s. It is, also, it is, also, it is almost always described as lawn and serpent-like. Its skin is dark and was reported to be either blue or brown. It can jump or rise from the water. It is also very fast and strong. Back to this hoax thing. I explained the book like Light Monster Mysteries investigating the world's most elusive creature as follows. As a prank, they had fabricated a semblance of the creature using a barrel filled with the empty balls for buoyancy and fitting it with a dragon-like head, rope, and anchor to keep it in one place, and twine attached to a rope that can ran underwater to the shore of Cartwright Bay, permit them to bob it barrel body and head it up and down. So they uh, made a fake Lake Monster the prank. Next up is Phantom. Uh, two huge cryptid canine tax man in southern Ontario. In a, it's the middle of the night in a secluded cornfield in southern Ontario. Four men att attempting to harvest a illegal marijuana crop when suddenly they became part of an incredible nightmare. I recently received a telephone call from a nervous man who I will identify as RM. It will be he was hoping to find someone willing to listen and to consider his remarkable encounter. RM and three other men were attempting to harvest a marijuana crop that had been planted in a cornfield. This occurred at night in October 2017. The silage corn had been tall that year, standing at 8 to 10 feet. But feed corn harvest was about to take place and it was time to pull the cash crop. Location was a field just south of Old Cemetery, Bethel Union Pioneer Cemetery, 42 degrees 44 degrees, 23, 5, 9, uh, some kind of coherence. I don't know how to read that. Uh, 
Wait for four hours, stores, 23 minutes. I don't know if I can say that. Uh, it's on Cremor Ave and Clearview Township, Ontario. I asked R.E.M. to write down what they experienced. We had gotten to the field and fanned out. I was farther to the right, straight ahead in the distance was a blue flash of light that originated in the cemetery. It looks like it was 10 to 15 feet to off the ground, then a loud crashing thump, like something heavy fell. Then a few hundred feet to the left, the exact same thing happened, like a blue ring shaped, uh, like a blue ring shaped flash of light. These things tore out of trees and into the corn at an incredible speed, faster than any live creature I've ever seen move, supernatural fast. When they were, whenever they were, they began to bluff charge me and my friends, running at me three or four times and stopping just outside the range of direct sight. Maybe two or three corn rows of corn away. They were big as grizzly bears and fast as race cars. They were going between me and my buddies. Then I saw the head and shoulders of the one. A large wolf-like head with pointed ears and broad shoulders. The head had no neck and was situated directly on the shoulders it was a terrifying sight. There's an exclamation point here. It was a terrifying sight. Uh, I exclamate. Ew. Uh, I'm not really good at exclamating points. Okay. Uh, there was zero doubt in my mind as to what I had seen. It was 10 feet away at the max. Just then it charged me from the front and left. Then my buddy's dog came in from the right. I thought I had been flanked and almost shot the dog who was losing her mind at the time whining and whimpering and shaking profusely non-stop. At this point, I started uh, praying to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. And the two dog creatures, or whatever they were, instantly turned and hightailed it out of the cornfield back towards the cemetery. So my buddies and I found each other, and the guy said they had been charged too. The guy who had driven us there said he had seen it. I told him I did also. I continued to pray as I looked in the direction where I saw things or saw them run off to. We had a serious job to, still to do. There were thousands of dollars sitting in the field. We got things harvested and wrapped up, ready to move out of there. Well, they doubled back around us because when my friend and I were struggling with dragging the big blue tarp full back along the tractor access route, we passed a large bush. One of these creatures was right there. My friend screamed, there's a wolf. As I looked up, it was running like a man on two legs. The creature only ran about 10 feet into the woods and stopped dead in its tracks. My friend and I were ready to go. He says to me, is it coming back to us? Is it coming back to get us? I just started praying out loud again. Nothing else happened. We dragged everything to the car because it's a little hatchback. Someone had to stay behind, so I thought, well, this is great. There's something seriously messed up going on here that only seems to be kept at bay by prayer. These guys don't know I've been, been praying, so not one of them isn't going to, going to get killed if I don't stay. I think this is the Holy Spirit protecting me. I strongly felt it. So the dog and I stayed behind and spent the next hour on the road. As he whined and cried and freaked out, I was praying and holding my ground. I didn't I did notice that one creature came up behind the embankment that was along the entrance to the field and stood there, pacing back and forth. I then saw the other creature was now on the other side of the entrance road, 
behind a huge blackberry bush, a hands over the ditch. It was not more than 10 feet from us. The dog was freaking out so badly that it almost got to me. I thought she might just drop, drop from a heart attack. Every time I see the dog now, I know she is remembering it too. She just gives me a look and starts shaking. She has a strongly, she has strongly bonded to me since that day. I was never so happy as to when the those headlights came back over the hill, and my friend pulled up to get us. It seemed like forever we were on that road, but in reality, it may have been one hour tops. When we got back, my friend said, "Did you see the size of that dog, boar? That boar, bro? See the size of that dog, bro?" I just said, I didn't want to talk about it. Note, I believe that this incident occurred because of something related to the cemetery. The cemetery was established in 1855. It was considered one of the only integrated cemeteries of its time, with black, white, and Aboriginal peoples all buried in it. It remained an active cemetery until 1940 and ended up falling into a state of disrepair by the 1960s. Present inmates were used to clear away the surrounding debris of the site However, it fell into disrepair again by the 70s. It continued to remain in a woeful state until 1997 when a group of volunteers secured permission from the township of Clearview to restore and retain the site. I'll be interested to find out if the strange activity had been reported in the area. I have asked a local paranormal investigator to look into the location. Cemetery honors the early multiracial pioneers of Sundill Township. Long. That was uh, from phantomandmonsters.com by, uh, I can get a source, like, uh, Arthur. I'll see Arthur here, but, um, yeah, phantomandmonsters.com. Got some books there. Check them out. Monstrickler, maybe? Mystery surrounds creature found in Ontario Creek. Aboriginal elders are calling a dead creature that was washed up on the shores of the remote community a bad omen of things to come. Although nobody seems to be able to identify the waterlogged carcass from photos. Now there's a lack of opinion on the matter. Some think it might be akin to a mythical creature like Ogopogo, but most theories on the internet, including a CTV Okay, a peg is a beaver, a muskrat, a possum, or any other run like animal that may have been deceased or must happen by decomposition. These photos went viral after Ontario First Nations community south of Hudson Bay released pictures of a rat like creature that dog sniffed out from a local creek earlier this month. Pictures posted to the website of the Big Trout Lake community shows a long and skinny creature with brown fur and a bald, pale face. And was about a foot long, according to the official community website. The creature was found with two nurses were hiking near a local creek. Their dog Sam saw something in the water and dragged the creature out. Daryl uh, Senawap, a First Nations council member for Big Trout Lake, said he can't confirm stories, but some community members, including his great uncle, about signs of a strange animal roaming swampy areas and feeding on beavers. Keep in mind that it was about 60 years ago, Sanojoa told CTV News Channel from Big Trout Lake, adding, I've never seen the creature myself, nor has my grandfather or most of the community. Uh, Sanojoa did say 
however, that this creature's appearance is being interpreted by some elders as a bad omen for the community. The community's website states, No one knows what it is, but our ancestors used to call it the ugly one. Really seeing, but when seeing, it's a bad omen. Something bad will happen according to our ancestors. Uh, Sandwap said one of these two the nurses who aren't from the area tried it as a foul order uh, emanating from the creature's carcass. Pair did attempt to move the creature because they believed it was an animal common to the area. The nurses eventually realized that they had taken photos of an unfamiliar, possibly rare animal. But when he returns to the rocky shoreline, it was gone. And the photos are the only evidence left of the mystery creature. Uh, the story of the creature found in uh, Oak Creek community of 1200 started to be picked up by news organizations on websites across the world, including the Herald Sun in Australia, China's Zeno, Zeno News NC, and the Sun in London. Online commentators have suggested that mystery creature could be either a waterlogged bear cub or an otter. It's an otter or a raccoon. Looks like an otter of some kind. Look at the pictures. Definitely looks like an otter. It's like the structural. That was from uh, ctvnews.ca. By uh, 2010, damn, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. <coughs> Next up, can you fuck over? Tell the monsters of Cabbage Town, Ontario. I was told by Becca Ferguson, uh, also known as Catching Nuisance. Thank you for your story, Rebecca. Becca. In the early 19th century days of Toronto, there were many rivers, streams and creeks branching across the land like veins and arteries. Endless trees towered above the developing city rather than skyscrapers, and town down in the riverbeds of these yet rural lands, wilds lived in a race of water spirits known as, known in Alquian mythology as Minguisi, pronounced Mamaguesi. These elusive humanoid creatures were elfish, small and hairy, with voices said to be like the high-pitched drone of a dragonfly. When the city builders rerouted these waterways into solid underground tunnels that merged with the sewer system, it is thought these Amemaguesi were unknowingly buried with them. By the early 20th century, Torontians had long forgotten the existence of these vast tunnels, that is, until one summer's day in 1978 an area of, this, of the city known as Cabbage Town. A man named Ernest stumbled upon a secret entrance to the tunnels while searching for a lost kitten. Certain he had heard distressed mowing down in the alley behind his Parliament Street apartment the night before, he decided to, to armory crawl into the culvert about 10 feet, flashlight in hand. The tunnel gradually widened its black desk like an abyss. Something scattered ahead, <coughs> and he heard, and he stayed his flashlight beam, hoping to see, kit, see his kitten. But was no cat caught in the beam. A pair of slanted red eyes balls at him above the gaping, large-toothed mouth of a hairy, gray, 
bipedal creature about three feet long. Go away. Go away. It screeched. Then run off into a side tunnel. Terrified, Ernest shimmied backward out of the tunnel and waited a full year before admitting to Toronto Sun newspaper what he'd seen. However, when they went in search of the tunnel's entrance, he found a collapse in upon itself, and no one has ever admitted to such a sighting again. Crazy. That's from Wattpad.com by Catching Nuisance. The Toronto Tunnel. More about the Toronto Tunnel. Toronto Tunnel Muslim. The city of Toronto once had numerous streams. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Our small water spirits usually blah, blah. Anywhere from humans who... Uh, Memoguesi can only be seen by children and medicine people. And others, they can, can appear to appear to anyone and may help humans give them tobacco and other gifts. Most often, Memoguesi are described as being child-sized and hairy with a large head and a strange voice that sounds like the whine of a dragonfly, like we said in the previous article. The Cree and Inu describe them as having narrow faces, and some Memonami storytellers have said they have no noses. It is sometimes said that Memoguesi were originally created from the bank or from the bark of trees. Memoguesi are said to carve symbols on rocks and sometimes carve small canoes for themselves out of stone. Some believe that that their name come from the uh, Ajui ward from ha- for Harry Meme since. Since Memoguesi are described as having hairy faces and bodies. Other people believe their name is related to the word for butterfly. Memogwa when Toronto uh, buried many of its river stream systems under underground tunnels or the memograts were buried or, or the memograts buried with them. Uh, tunnel formation. Toronto puts its creek underground. Don, Humber, and Rogue Rivers get all the glory, but Toronto is much more than a three-river town. For John Graves, Smoko, when lands that would occupy the street, the city was thick with trees and thickets, and soft soil was transferred by numerous streams and creeks. Uh, over centuries, etched art out deep ravines and sculpted rolling dales. As early settlers would find, it's also quite difficult to completely erase a river. Many of the waterways that once penetrated downtown Toronto still exist, rerouted into underground culverts or underground sewers hidden from the public. Of all the rivers present day, of all the rivers present in early Toronto, Garrison Creek was the biggest and hardest to cross. Its widening course and occasionally deep ravine proved a significant obstacle to the expanding city. Central bridges were built at Dundas and Harbour Streets, both of which have been buried but still stand. Garrison's Creek uh, started north of St. Clair and headed directly south via Bloor and Christie under a half-buried bridge at Harbour. The stone wall on the north side of the street at Bigford Park is the, bigger, is the bridge's parapet. It continues south, causing the weird dips and warped intersections on Crawford Street. What's that? Uh, from there, Garrison Creek would head toward head through uh, Trinity Bellwood Park, where there's another buried bridge under Crawford Street. Dog Park is in part of the old ravine. Now, the, now to the south 
these corner parallel to Niagara Street, where the riverbank caused its distinctive arc. Garrison Creek drains Toronto Bay near Bathurst and Fort York Boulevard. Garrison Creek got its name because Ontario was young and entered Lake Ontario just east of Fort York. Military garrison for the region, the Fort York, the military garrison for the region. Uh, it is said that at the time, the mouth of the creek was suitable for mooring a few small boats. Mooring, M-O-O-R-I-N-G, mooring. Uh, the creek and its beginnings uh, about 12,000 years ago when the last remnants of the Wisconsin Glacier melted off the St. Clair Westlands. The glacier had moved to and fro from the area for at least 60,000 years. It had wiped the land clear of forests and left deep deposits of glacial drifts, sand, clay, gravel, and stones, perhaps 200 feet thick. Both glacial Lake Iroquois, forerunner of Lake Ontario, washed against the pile of drift and created a steep bluff, Lake Ontario's Shore Bluff, along with now Davenport Road. By the early 1900s, stones had become so dense and the creek so polluted with sewage and refu- refuge and refuse that sewers became essential for public health reasons. By the mid-1920s, the creek, the creek had been completely buried while Garrison Creek no longer exists. Many of the other creeks and rivers are underground in the city's sewer system. Hey guys, this is Heather and Kristen, the hosts of Sinister Sweethearts podcast, and we want to share with you a little bit about our show. If you're looking for fun banter between old college sweetmates about all things paranormal, sinister, weird, and generally creepy, check out our podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. Uh, another sign here by... Ernest. Ernest never approached me with a story. He was afraid that people would think he was a drunk or worse crazy. I felt no one would ever believe him. The Toronto Air newspaper's son found him after hearing the experience said from a reliable contact who worked with a relative of Ernest, one of a handful of people to whom he had considered confide the experience. He agreed to talk to only his only if his last name was not revealed. Richard spoke to him, I'll never forget, he said, Go away, go away, in a hissing voice. And it took off down a long tunnel off the side. I got out of there as fast as I could. I was shaking with fear. Ernest occupied his son's staff, returned from the election of the March of 1979. The case entrance was created at the bottom of a narrow passageway for a building. Issuing a note. It's issuing a note, yeah, that they went there and checked, and it was, uh, the tunnel was broken down. It's a, it's a, it is interesting to note that the description of the creature provided by Ernest and artist rendering, which was included in the original Toronto Sun article, resembles some current reports of another strange creature, the South American Chupacabra. Hmm. Ernest, I want to talk to you. You're still around. Next up is from the Bind Parent Institute, a Lake Superior Cave Monster. If you have already have an interest in the weird world of cryptozoology, or if you are perhaps someone who enjoys a wide variety of fortune, fourteen subjects on a large spectrum, you're more than likely familiar 
are you familiar with the monster said to dwell within Lake Superior, the largest of North America's Great Lakes? But if you're someone who is new to the subject enjoys just gradually learning about these things whenever you come to the right place, then you have come to the right place. So regardless of where you are in terms of knowledge, let us bring you to this up to par and give you some super quick background info on what is thought to live in the gigantic lake known as Superior. Believed, but not verified, to have been sighted as far back as the early 17th century by explorers sent to the Superior area by Samuel de Chapin, governor of New France at the time. Creature is most often described as looking like an absolutely massive aquatic snake. Prior to arrival of the Europeans, though, the Aljubi people, an Alcuin speaking tribe, spoke of the lake creature in both respected and fear tones, and often depicted as a misfitshu or great length, a dragon cat mixed with lawn horns, pawn paws, large scales, and amphibious. Amphibian qualities. This creature, also known as an underwater panther, is one of the most important and powerful beings in the indigenous peoples around the Great Lake region. It was believed to be the maker of all water creatures, as well as having additional power over snakes. The Mitsubishi were said to have be able to create storms, whirlpools, shape shift, and provide protection to those who willingly gave offerings of tobacco and made small game sacrifices. Now, as you come to learn over the course of many years of European influence and after countless eyewitness reports, the monster eventually modernized and adopted the name of Presi due to a uh, few sightings that took place around the Prescott Island River in Michigan's UP. Also took on the name name of on its name because apparently it's super difficult to, for people to give a lake monster a name that isn't similar to Nessie. Along with the, this name change, depictions of the creature also got updated and now depending on who you ask, the monster can look like anything from a giant eel or fish to the favorite classic living dinosaur. The lake superior monster is now more in line with modern lake monsters than how it was originally depicted over 400 years ago. That isn't all there is to learn about Pressy, though. Not by a long shot. There's a lot more information in a ton of stories that we didn't even make the slightest mention of here, and we urge you to take some time and look into the subject more if you're interested. This may cause you to ask yourself, though, why would we suggest you take the time to do it yourself rather than just keep going with it? Well, the reason is that this article isn't about Pressy. Contrary to proper belief, there's thought to be another monster that dwells within the dangerous waters of Lake Superior. And the strange beast is the sole reason we are here today. I believe I talked about Pressy in like Michigan and on Thursday, 26, August 26, 1886, the Manitoba pilot published an article titled A Lake Superior Monster. The article itself wasn't very long, no more than a few hundred words and a tightly packed column was void of all drawings for reference. Within its margins, Oracle described an encounter between an unlucky man and a monster head that has, as far as we could tell, been only described once. A creature which differs greatly from all recognized depictions of Mishapishu seems to be something entirely unique. And it's this uniqueness that we touch on as soon as we get some more background information. 
As mentioned above, Lake Superior is the largest lake of all the Great Lakes in North America. In terms of size, the order goes Lake Superior, 31,700 square miles, Lake Huron, 23,007 square miles, Lake Michigan, 22,404 square miles, Lake Erie, 9,910 square miles, and last but not least, Lake Ontario, 7,340 square miles. If you want to buy average depths, it goes superior at 49 feet average and 1333 feet maximum. Ontario, 203 feet average and 802 feet maximum. Michigan, 279, 279 feet average and 2923 feet maximum. And you're on 109 feet average and 750 feet maximum. Last but not least, Erie, 62 feet average and 210 feet max. These demos alone are amazing to learn, but you learn that while also taking the titles for the largest freshwater lake by surface area and the lake that's approximately the size of South Carolina, it also gets claimed to the water of the only lake to be within its largest depths, uh, the only great lake to be within its large deposits within its large deposits of copper. Copper Lake, I believe they call it Copper Lake for some reason. For that reason, like, it's coming to my head for some reason. Um, while many wouldn't guess the copper, one of the few native metals which occurs naturally in the usable metallic form, would be found within Lake Superior. Archaeological evidence from the Superior region suggests that the metal has been mined by ancient peoples within the area from as far back as 3000 BC. Some historians will even argue that copper mining around Superior took place nearly 2,000 years before the European's Bronze Age. What makes these claims even crazier is that while the evidence does suggest that mining was taking place, nobody knows exactly what, who was doing the mining. Obviously, people who took up residence around the Great Lake migrated to the area according to legend over 500 years ago in the 1500s. And when they arrived, working or copper mines were discovered already abandoned. It's believed that nearly 5,000 mining pits, some around 20 feet deep, were created by these unknown ancient miners with nothing but primitive stone hammers and hatchets. Well, it wouldn't be stone. <clears throat> it would be like a really hard stone. Like really. Because it would just break. It would have to be a stone that's harder than copper. Uh, according to. Uh, or. We are. Oh, it's harder than the surrounding dirt and rock around the carper to get it out. Um, I believe it. Everybody, I know with my primitive stone hammers and hatches. Even though nobody knows who these ancient people were or where they went, what we do know is that copper left behind took a Greek stimulus for the arriving Ajuit people. As referenced earlier, a Mississippi Great Lynx is often described as uh, having prominent horns and large scales. But what we didn't mention was uh, that these horns and scales were said to be made out of pure copper. The reason for this was that Mitsubishi was said to be the guardian of copper itself and would do the, all it could to protect its precious metal. There is even a, a legend around Lake Superior which talks about an 
we south youth who was unfortunately found himself locked in battle with a Mishipishu close to the shore. During the fight, the boy was able to break off a piece of the Great Lynx's tail of the Great Lynx's tail after tracking it with a broken canoe paddle. Understandably, this caused the creature to fly flee back into the depths of the lake, but also benefited the boy in more ways than you could imagine. It said a piece of broken tail was made entirely of solid copper, and since the boy knew about the magic Mishipishu was said to possess, he could catch the tail for himself as good luck. While the magic must have been real, as the legend goes on to say that that allows the boy to catch a tail on his person. He's great with nothing but good luck while both hunting and fishing. As you can see, the Lake Superior area has been a deeply rich history with not only a legendary water monster, but also with copper itself. This history goes back centuries, and for some, elves give credit, credit credence to the monster stories, which, which originated around it. So when the Matuak pilot ran their story of on August 26, 1886, it only made sense that in a few short paragraphs would picture both a strange monster and then the highly revered metal itself. So with all necessary background information given and everybody now brought up to speed on why all this is important, we can finally get into the story of the monster itself. Let us begin. <clears throat> the story begins, begins with a group of copper mine prospectors landing on one of the islands within Lake Superior. Article does not state which one, nor does it make clear if it is close to Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, or Canada. Because of the history of mining in Superior, though, we're going to say it's more than likely Michigan or Canada. Anyway, miners landed on the unknown island and started looking for signs of copper. When they found none on the surface, they got their stuff out together to begin looking for underwater rock formations which would indicate the presence of copper. Believing they had found something of interest, uh, the man decided to set up camp and remain on the island so they could make a full, full uninterrupted day of searching within the lake itself. That night, though, something arrived at the island that caused the man to wonder if they would ever be there at all. While the man camped close to the water's edge, the damp winds of the lake made its business to try and extinguish the copper, extinguish the fire. Constantly on the verge of going out, the main source of heat and the light needed to be fed constantly or else darkness would yet again creep back onto the island. Seeing that this ever hungry flame could use another log, one of the men rose to toss one in. When he stood up, he caught sight of something strange moving through the water. There, within the darkness of the lake, was a bright green light, moving slowly and spreading out nearly 30 feet in diameter. While the sight was both beautiful and mesmerizing to most of the men, it causes it, it causes them to rise and move as close to the water as possible. One of the members in the group remembered stories that he had heard from which they had been told by the tribes living around the lake, the ones about a powerful creature living within the water. Creatures that could easily snatch unexpected men right from the shore and drag them to the bottom in order to assume them terrible stories about Mishapishu. Mishapishu. With all the fears now approaching its limit, the stone miner, the lone miner, urged his fellow cohorts to step back from the edge and quickly inform them of what he now believed to be a living within, to be living within the water. 
The men listened with great interest at the light as the light slowly came closer. With all members of the group now now aware of the dangers that dwelled just below the surface, one of the men grabbed a rifle and fired a shot late, shot into the water directly at the light. Without hesitation, the light went dark. And the unknown source was gone. The remaining group members at once <coughs> grabbed their firearms and for the rest of the night a watch was kept, just in case whatever made the light decided to come back. Lucky for them though, whatever it was decided to stay away and let the man enjoy the rest of the night in peace. Because apparently it's, it too was waiting for this dawn of for a new day to make his presence known yet again. Ooh. Ooh. That mean. When the sun rose the next day, the man woke with a renewed sense of purpose. The events that took place during the night were no longer forefront in their minds. Strange green light had been replaced by images of copper, the possibility of striking it big. A group cleared up the camp, gathered their things, and made their way back onto the small barge which had been brought them here. Once on all, once all on board, the man began to process. Of getting one of their own ready, get their own ready to get into the water and search. Uh, process of getting one of their own ready to get into the water and search for what they were sure was down there copper. Now, fully dressed in a 20 pound waterproof canvas suit and bulky copper and brass helmet, the lucky uh, chosen ones slowly made its way towards the side of the barge, prepared to venture in. Two members of the group manned the air supply pump, and other gave instructions to the driver diver's telephone system. A sail connecting tube, which attached like the air hose, allowed the diver the surface to somewhat somewhat communicate. With everything in working order, the diver took a deep breath, calmed his nerves, picked up a bucket and a crowbar attached to the belt to a knife, attached a knife to his belt, and then left forward in the Great Lake. With his heavy suit and weighted boots pulling him downward, the diver sank to a depth of about 30 feet from making contact with the targeted area. Both feet now planted firmly on the bottom, the diver began his search for the copper. After being under surface for only a short time, the diver was able to confirm that the assumptions he and his course made about, co about copper being in the air were correct. There ahead of him were the telltale signs of a submerged vein of copper. A path of green flecked rocks that snaked along the bottom like painted streams. The diver, knowing the vein could certainly lead towards a large deposit, followed the vein towards an overhanging rock to what appeared to be an underwater cavern. As he progressed inside, the horse the hoses attached to his helmet and leading up towards the surface pressed tight against the rock hanging overhead. Knowing he wasn't able to advance much further, lest the, he break the hose, Diver turned around and headed back towards the open lake. But just as he was about to reach the cave's entrance, everything went black. Confused by what was occurring, the diver slowly approached the area of his escape. With arms outstretched, expecting to be greeted by the hard surface of a large rock, which was hung overhead and may have fallen, thus blocking his path. Diver was instead shocked to find himself pressed up against a living, fleshy thing. That shock was then exaggerated with the, the living thing, which was up to this point was kept hidden by the blackness around it, 
to glow green. The diver, now fully aware of what he was looking at, tried to back away as quickly as possible. But the slack of the hose was made limited by not only the pressure of the rock, but also now also by the creature pressing against him. Unsure of what he could do, the diver began yelling to his helmet in hopes the sound could, would carry through the telephone system and alert his teens back out on the barge. While the yelling was, was the last story, didn't actually prove successful in a way. It was only heard, sadly, though, it was the creature that heard, heard it. With his yelling now at maximum volume, Diver watched with wide eyes through the holes of his helmet as the green glowing beast began to move towards him. Fearing what may have happened next, the Diver turned and tried to move forward, but was unable to do so as the hoses were stretched to a limit. Beginning to panic, the diver turned out yet again to view the creature. Only this time, when he spun around, he made direct eye contact with a giant eye staring back at him. The diver reached out of instinct and grabbed the knife from his belt, shoving it forward into the creature, eye of the creature. Like an explosion, the dull green light grew brighter and drove away the darkness inside the cave. And at that moment, the terrified diver was able to see the creature in all its glory. There before him, blocking his only exit was a giant beast with large eyes and more than a dozen tentacles flailing wildly through the water. The diver, the knife still in hand, slashed at the mass of tentacles moving around him. Every time the sharp blade made contact with the thick, writhing arms, the creature grew more upset, grabbing at anything and everything it could wrap its arms around. While the diver was able to force back every tentacle attempted, uh, every tentacle Every tentacle attempted to grab him, hoses extending from the top of his helmet to the surface weren't so lucky. The creature grabbed one of his arms around the main life support system and began to pull volume back and forth. Diver now lifted off the ground and at the mercy of the flowing beast, he just slashed wildly with his knife in hopes of striking a vital part of the monster. But with every second that passed by, his actions proved to become more difficult and more life-threatening. Hose now twisted within the arms of the creature were no longer able to do the job and supply oxygen to the exhausted diver. Along with this, the connections were beginning to detach from the top of the helmet and a slow trickle of water began to fill the copper headpiece. Recognizing the next few minutes literally meant life or death, the diver focused on all the tension on the tentacle that had been wrapping around itself around his body. With his arms still free, the divers gathered every ounce of strength he had left and plunged the knife into his thick tentacles around him. As soon as the blade pierced the flesh of the beast, the diver pulled the knife sideways through the thickest part of the arm and simply managed to sever it from the creature. Dark blood spills out of the stump in the water surrounding them, and the beast pulled it, both, pulled it back in both shock and pain. Every arm released what is was gripping tightly. Green light began to flash at varying intensities across his body. The monster then packed his remaining arms tightly together and shot forward into the depths of the cave. It's the only indication that it was only the only indication that it was there was the faint glow of green light, but this too was quickly consumed by darkness. Now the verge of losing consciousness, the diver made a feasible feeble attempt to exit the cave, but left like of oxygen oxygen oxygen? I don't know. 
air, lack of air, and shock boat. And he felt himself begin to move not only out of the cave, but also to open water around him. Uh, overwhelming exhaustion stopped driver quickly as, as he started. Fully accepting that his fate was sealed, driver was unsimilarly shocked. And he felt himself beginning to move not only out of the cave, but also to open water around him. After only a few minutes, divers was hauled to the surface and back onto the barge with the rest of the group. After the diver had regained his composure and checked for injuries, the man of barge related to him how their boat had been thrust violently back and forth as well as pulled across the lake surface, fully out of control. On more than one occasion, the diving hoses was nearly ripped from the boat, but thankfully remained attached due to the heavy pumping equipment bolted to the barge. It wasn't until the hoses went limp only a few minutes prior, the men were able to finally pull the diver to the surface. After we were finished telling the side of the story, the diver relates his harrowing tale to the shock group. When all was said and done, he made a vow to never get to the water of Lake Superior again. With all agreements, the man raised the an anchor and heads to shore. Upon arrival back on dry land, the man disbanded and left the area, never to return again. At least, that's what the story says. So, there you have it, a captivating tale about a tentacle beast dwelling below the surface of North America's largest lake. A worthy addition to the collection of works of all things strange and in and around the Great Lakes region. But is there any truth to the tale? With all the description of this strange creature differs greatly from the stories and legends regarding both Mishapishu and Pressy, this glowing octopus-like monster actually have more in common with the former than the latter. Remember, LGBT legends claim the great links with a shapeshifter and is fiercely protected with a copper that resided in the lake. This identical monstrosity had been just another form of the Mishapishu of Lake Superior. It did glow with the same color of the metals in the water. It also appeared to take up residence where a large deposit was thought to be found. Do these parts of the story help prove that Mishapishu of great links of the lake really does prowl through the vast depths of superior? Answer as much as we hate to the ones to bring it to you is no. What does help prove though is that yellow journalism was alive and well in the Great Lakes regions back in the late 1800s. For those who are unaware, yellow journalism is a term that was originally coined in the 1890s by Erwin Wardman helps describe and inform readers of the many sensationalist stories that may have come across when this paper within their papers back during that time. Even though the term wasn't made official until the late 19th century, the act of over-exaggerating within, within newspaper stories was alive and well long before anyone officially categorized it. Stories that were considered yellow, yellow were all those that generally contained little to no legitimate research on the topic that were showcasing and instead focused more on the eye-catching headline in order to drive up sales. Topics that were specifically in the session articles included made up political scandals, fictional crimes, or unsolved mysteries. Phony experts speaking about scientific topics, snakes, oil sales, and of course, monsters. The sensational stories were often the products of traveling writers, those who were not affiliated or tried to any specific newspaper. We have been hired by newspaper in order to help drive up sales during a slump or help steal away the customers of a competing paper in the air. Modern first price of all her experience on a daily basis is very frustrating. Clickbait. 
even though the story of the tentacle beast of Blake Superior is more than likely entirely phony, does not take away from the fact that it is generally a good and fun story to read and later retell to others. The story was originally featured from a book of legends and folklore from around the Great Lakes region. Rather than trying to be passed off as a legit with a newspaper, we feel it would have gotten more love and attention over the course of the late the last 130 plus years. I said it was doomed to get lost amongst the thousands of other sensational stories, like teams of fill pages of America's main sources of information. At the end of the day, and after everything we learned, we are left with one simple question. Could a monstrous creature actually be lurking within the depths of Lake Superior? Well, I don't think you need to fear coming face to face with a giant octopus, serpent, or mispicious next time you find yourself on North America's largest lake. You also don't think you should blindly believe everything you read. Could something be out there? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't really know, to be honest. What we do know is that only way to truly find out is jumping in feet first and have a look for yourself. The Pine Barrens Institute. Image credit, Google Images. Great story. Old Yellowtop. Old uh, 1906. A creature showed up in Cobalt, Ontario, Canada, that would go on to become legendary. The mysteries, the mysterious hairy hominid was reported to stand between seven and eight feet tall, appeared to be weighed almost 400 pounds, covered in dark brown, almost black hair, and walked upright. The creature also uh, had to appear to be yellowish blonde hair on top of his head. It was this feature that gave the creature its name, Yellowtop. The first reported sighting of Yellowtop took place in September of 1906. A group of workers building the frameworks of the violent mine east of Cobalt sighted a creature that walked walking on two legs near the mine. Throughout the entire construction of the mine, the creature continued to be seen in the distance as well as relatively close to the work area. The men never reported the creature as being angry or territorial, but that it appeared to be as curious as them and often watch their work from a safe distance away. A considerable amount of time passed until the next sighting, almost 20 years later, 17 to be sick, in 1923. In 1923, two prospectors up around the surrounding cobalt area were working in the woods when they came upon what they believed to be a bear. The bear was crouched down around a bush eating blueberries with its back to the man. In effort to scare the unknown creature, anyone was away while the man decided to throw a large rock at it. After getting hit in the back with a rock, the docile creature immediately stood up on its two legs, turned towards the man, walked forward a bit as if he viewed the two men better, and turned to walk away. The prospectors described the unknown creature as being completely covered in black hair, but with yellowish hair adoring the top of his head. The creature was believed to be the man soon was an adult. It was after these first few signs that the yellow top was become well known around the area. The next sign occurred in 1947 by a woman and her child. Uh, the woman reported seeing the creature walking along the edge of the forest towards Lake Gillies in Ontario. It is believed that at this point that the creature aged has roughly to be around 40 plus years old. The final and largest sightings 
will take place in 1970, and the top will be witnessed by 28 people. One day during 1970, a bus driver was shelling 27 miners for a work site when a much older Yeltop crossed the road directly in front of the bus. He crossed, his crossing caused the driver to suddenly hit the brakes as to avoid hitting the creature. The bus driver, who stated that he was originally not a believer in Yeltop, stated that at first he thought the creature in the road was a bear, but he quickly realized his error as he watched the creature walk ever smoothly on two legs. Bus driver, as well as the man on board, all described the same creature. A very large animal that looked almost like a man that was covered entirely in blackish gray hair and a head covered in yellowish white fur that went down to his shoulders. This final sign would make the age of the creature now, now known as the old yellow top at around 60 years old. It is believed that relatively soon after the sighting, all the yellow top passed away due to old age and was never seen again. The Pine Marriage Institute. I have also a Sasquatch or some kind. Trout Lake Monster. Uh, trout Lake Monster is an animal claimed to inhabit Big Trout Lake in northern Ontario. In 2010, photographs of an unidentified carcass prompted internet speculations of a mystery creature and telling the local First Nation legends of an animal visited to besiege bad news. According to University of Toronto, Professor Animal Carcass was likely an orange mink in the composition. After the photos were published, the carcass of an unidentified animal discovered near a lake on Kichimochu was observed by two hackers. And this is a story about the, the nurses. You can pogo. In Canadian folklore, the Eagle Pogo is a creature that's said to dwell in Lake Smoko, Ontario. Christian name is essentially based on the Agopogo of like Aquanegan, British Columbia, and also the title of Dante's book, I Go Pogo. A slogan often mentioned in the comic. It, it is also called Kempit Kelly, after Bay descended from the lake, uh, city of Barney, Ontario. While many scientists disagree with the distance, Charlie continues to be logo to the Agopogo. According to legend, the Agapogo is described with a relatively canine as head different from other well known cryptological creatures. Because of this, many believers have speculated that it's related to such canine like aquatic animals as the Irish crocodile, also known as the Dubbo Chu. According to eyewitness accounts, the creature has been seen basking in the sun for a extensive period of time, implying that it's able to breathe air. Very interesting stuff here. That is it, I believe, for this episode of Monsters and Podcasts. And oh, God,、uh, I'm starving. I'm going to get some pizza. I have some like 23 minutes where I'm fucking supposed to be here.、Uh, yeah,、uh, this is coming out、um, around Christmas week. I guess, but, um, remember, let me know, let me know when you、uh, want some episodes. Last one's in last Monday, others this month.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Monster Legend Podcast. Hope you were able to find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We also have our own website at monsterlegendpodcast.com. If you'll be so kind to please leave a review and subscribe and let me know what I can do to make this show better for you. If you have any stories you'd like to submit or you'd like to be a guest, send me an email or a DM. But I hope you do one thing that's really important and have a great day. Thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.